Welcome to the Center Branch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, we get to start a brand new series this morning. I'm super excited about it. Before we jump in, would you take a minute and pray with me this morning? Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for your presence again. Father, I ask that you give each one of us grace. You give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, that our hearts would be tender, hungry, receptive, like good soil. Father, I pray that the truth of your word, the light of your word would drive out every lie. It would destroy every stronghold. It would crush everything the enemy has worked to build in people's minds and hearts. Father, let your people be built and edified and strengthened and nourished from your word today. Holy Spirit, you're our teacher. Come and lead us and guide us in truth. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've ever played with a gyroscope or not. Anyone even have any idea what I'm talking about, a, a, a gyroscope? Well, I, I happen to have one here, like it's coincidence. Here, here's a gyroscope. So this is a toy that those of us who are, I guess, older, this, this is what we got to play with. So a gyroscope is kind of a neat toy. You, you pull this string that I've wrapped around kind of the axle, and there is a, like a wheel that spins inside of of this other wheel. So it's kind of like a top, but it's a little bit different. You can get this thing spinning and the outside, the outside doesn't move and you can take it and you can balance it. You can, you can even balance it on a string. Um, but one of the things that it does is when it gets this momentum going, that, that circle spinning, is it creates so much momentum that even when you try to change the direction of it, when you, even a small one like this, you can feel that it is resistant to changing direction. So if I was holding it like this and it was spinning and I started to turn it, you could feel that because of that momentum, it's going around and around in one direction, it, it resists turning. And anyone ever play with one? You know what I'm talking about? All right, a couple of you. So I'll see if I can get it going here. This, this could be weird. Okay, so this thing is spinning. You could hold this part. Now, I don't know if you can tell, but it, it's, it's fighting me when I turn it. It starts to lean the other, other direction. So that's the way that a, a gyroscope works. That, that wasn't even rehearsed. That was spur of the moment. For a second, I had an image of that getting caught in her hair and spinning. And Glad that didn't happen. So the, the gyroscope, I've seen, you can look it up online where they take a, a bigger one and they use this principle of how it likes to stay in line with itself and, and not change direction. That as a joke, they would put a, a larger gyroscope than that one in like a briefcase or, or a suitcase and ask somebody who didn't know to pick it up and carry it to a certain place. And so they'll pick up the suitcase and they'll start walking along and it's, it's just normal. But then when they, they go to turn a corner or change direction, all of a sudden it, it's, the suitcase starts fighting them it doesn't want to turn. It'll even kind of lean, lean out. You, you can look that up online and watch videos of that. They even use gyroscopic mechanisms in cruise ships and big boats running down in the hull of the ship to help keep it on track and keep it from being tossed back and forth because of this principle. Once this thing gets spinning, its momentum is so in line with itself, it fights changing direction. 
Well, our minds can work very similar. That we can have patterns in our minds, things that go around and around, over and over and over, that create like a momentum in the way that we think. That when we want to change direction, even though you, you want to change, you know, I want to be a different kind of man. I want to stop doing this. I want to be a different kind of wife, a different kind of woman, a different kind of young person. I know I need to make changes, but if your mind has been running, it has a certain pattern, that even though you know you want to go over there, you, you desire for it, if your mind keeps running the same way, it's going to be resistant to making those kinds of changes. Maybe you've felt that in your life. You, you, you have a certain way of thinking, and even when you got saved or the Lord dealt with your heart about something, and you knew you wanted to start doing something different, it felt like there was always resistance, and you couldn't quite make the change that you wanted, that you wanted to make. The way that you think is so incredibly important. So we're starting a series this morning where we're going to be talking about how important your thoughts are, your self-talk, where you get the things that you think about, what is, what is the source of those thoughts, because your thoughts, how you think about you, your situation, that is far more important than many of us realize. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's amazing that the way a person thinks is actually, it's so powerful, so strong, it's going to determine the kind of life that they have, the kind of man or the kind of woman they are. Not the way that they hope, not even what, what they pray for. The way a, a person thinks is going to determine the course of their life. I, I believe if you'll take what we talk about in this series, actually apply it, make whatever changes in your thought life, your imagination need to be, cha need to be changed, this can be an absolutely life-changing series for you over the next few weeks. If you, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. So we're going to take this morning and just sort of set up, lay the groundwork for this series and talk about a few of the things that we'll press, we'll press in a little more as we move forward. Genesis chapter 3. Give you a little background. Most of you are very familiar with this story. We're only three chapters in. God has created the world, spoke it into existence, made all the trees and the animals. He makes man in his own image. And then he gets to a point where he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make him a helper, creates the first marriage, brings Eve into the equation. And they're living in, in the garden of Eden. It's like absolute paradise. They're free to, to do whatever. There's only one restriction that there's this tree that has fruit that they're, they're forbidden to eat. And one day the devil comes in the form of a serpent, starts to talk to Eve. She ends up deciding, you know what? I actually, I want this fruit the fruit that I'm not supposed to eat, I'm, I'm going for it, eats it, shares it with Adam. Then something happens, it says in, in verse seven, chapter three, verse seven, they realize they're naked, they, they get some fig leaves, sew them together, put them over themselves, and that's where we're gonna pick up the story. Chapter three, verse eight. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, and he said, 
Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you're naked? So again, the situation is Adam and Eve have just sinned. They ate, they ate the fruit, realize that they are naked, make themselves some fig leaf outfits, and then, and then they hear something. They hear God coming in the cool of the day. He's coming through the garden. Now, apparently, it, it seems like there might have been some standing appointment that Adam and Eve had with God, that there's a certain time where, where God would show up and they would just walk together and talk together and fellowship. It, it seems like that because God shows up and he's, he's calling out, hey, what's, what's going on? Where are you guys? It, it's, it's that time. It's, it's cool of the daytime. It's, it's where we hang out. And he starts calling, Adam, Eve, where, where are you guys? And so Adam hears that God is calling for him. And so he comes clean. He, he jumps down out of the tree or comes out from behind the rock or out of the hole or wherever he, he found the head, and he comes to God, and he says, here's what happened. Um, we, we heard you coming. We knew you were coming, and we were afraid, so we, we decided to hide. We were afraid, and we decided to hide. And this is interesting, because Adam is giving us like a sneak peek into how he sees himself, his image of himself. He says, we were afraid because we were naked and we decided that we needed to hide. Of all the ways he could have described himself and said, this was, we felt like we needed to hide for this reason. He could have said all kinds of different things that we would have had no way of knowing whether it's true or not true. He said, could have said, hey, I, we heard you coming. I was embarrassed because I'm so ugly. I decided to hide. I, I was embarrassed because I'm stinky. I was embarrassed because uh, I, I'm having a bad hair day. I'm just a mess today. I decided to hide. He could have said all kinds of different things. And if he would have said really anything else, we would have had no way of knowing whether it was true or not. So we, we don't know what he looked like. We don't know what his hair was like. We don't, we don't know how he smelled or any of those things. The one thing that we do know about his condition from verse seven is that he has just recently got himself a new fig leaf outfit and he is wearing it. So when he identifies himself as naked, he's actually saying, here's my condition. That's the one thing we know about him that actually isn't true. This is the first time in his entire existence that he has not been naked, but he's still identifying himself as naked. He's still behaving based on that condition, even though that's no longer his condition. This brings us a lot of insight. Look at the way how he saw himself affected him. It affected his behavior, affected where he was going, what he was doing, the decisions that he was making, based on what? He's thinking of himself because I'm naked. It affected him emotionally. He's feeling fear. Man, I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm, I'm scared. It's affecting him emotionally. It's affecting him spiritually. It says they, they hid from the presence of God. They wanted to get, get away from the presence of God. It's affecting his relationship with the Lord. When he used to hear God coming and run to him or be waiting there in the cool of the day for him to show up, excited to see God. Now he's doing the opposite. Now, now he's running away. This is all coming from how he sees himself, his view of himself. I've identified myself. Here's my condition, even though it's really not my condition. It's how I see myself. It's affecting my behavior. It's affecting my emotions. It's affecting my relationship with the Lord. How do you see yourself? How do you view you? What, what are the, the thoughts that you think about who you are, how you are, and how is that perception of you affecting the different areas of your life, affecting what you do, where you go, the emotions you feel? How does it affect the relationship you have with God? Because it is affecting you. Do, do you think of yourself as 
a successful person or a failure? Do you think of yourself as an attractive person or a repulsive person? Do you think of yourself as a mediocre person or an average person, as a smart person, as a dumb person? What are the words you would use to describe you? Because it's having an effect. And it's important what we think about ourselves and that pattern, that wheel that we have turning that makes going other directions very, very difficult. So he, Adam, Adam says, here's what's going on. I hid because I'm naked. And then God asks, God asks a question. He says, who told you? Who told you that you're naked? Now, as far as being naked goes, we, we know that at one point there, there is some validity to that. Up until this point in time, they have been naked. So there's some truth there. But God asks, who told you? So it's, it's not just whether something is true or false. The source of that information matters. Where did it come from? Not, not just, is it valid? Can I back that up? Can I make an argument that, that this actually is who I am or how I am? That, that's not the only thing that's important. What is the source of that information that's being spoken about you? Is, did you come up with that? Is your, that your idea? Do your friends give you that idea? Have you analyzed the, the results of your life and kind of drawn conclusions based on what you've experienced and what you've seen? I'm kind of okay. I'm not very good. I'm really, really this. I, I'm not so much that. What is the source of it? Is it something from your, your childhood? The source matters. God says, who told you? Where, where is that coming from? Did you come to that conclusion on your own? It's important what the source of what you're thinking about is. But it's not just the source that matters. It says, who told you that you're naked? Source matters, but also where we assign that information or where we place that information. What level we allow that information, the influence we, we give it in our lives. God says, who told you that that's what you are, that that's who you are? Who told you that, that that's your identity? Who told you you're naked? Who took a random detail of your life, took that random detail and elevated it and put it as a place of your identity? Who took something that just happens to be a, a something, a, a characteristic, a detail, and changed it from just a detail to being who you are, what you are? Now you're making decisions based on that. Now you're conducting your life. Now you're relating to God based on that. That's just a detail. People do it all the time. People will take just a random detail of their life. And if they're not careful, they'll allow that detail to move from just, that's just a detail into who they are. It becomes their identity. You, you've had a divorce. P people will have a divorce and allow, that, that's just a detail. Those are details. That's not your identity, but people that will allow that to mean they're a failure. They're not good at relationships. They're unwanted. They're rejected. That becomes how they see themselves. That's just details. You've messed up. You've done things you shouldn't have done. You've disappointed people, made mistakes. Those are just details. That's not who you are. People will allow that to become who they'll see themselves. I've disappointed people. I am a disappointment. I've made mistakes. I am a screw up. They'll, they'll allow it to move from detail to identity, and it is a costly mistake to make because you will behave and conduct yourself in line with how you identify yourself, whether it's accurate or not accurate. We see it here with Adam. Adam is behaving the way that a naked person would behave. Imagine a scenario, and this is, I don't know how you got into this scenario, this is weird, but imagine you're someplace and you're naked. I don't, again, just... 
You're, you're someplace, you're outside, you're at the mall, you're somewhere and you're naked and you hear somebody coming. It's somebody that you respect. They're, they're coming. What would happen to you? You'd start to feel some anxiety, start to feel some fear maybe. And what would you do? You would look for a place to hide. Like, oh my God, how am I here? I'm naked. I've got I've to hide myself. That, that's what Adam did. He's behaving like any of us would act in that scenario, except he's not really naked. He's clothed himself, but he's behaving consistent, not with reality, but with his thought life. That's determining the course of his life. It is a mistake and so incredibly costly for us to think thoughts and get that gyroscope of, of imagination in our thought life spinning in a direction that's not based on what God has to say about us. I'll use myself as an example. I've, I've made mistakes. I've done things that were very sinful. I've done things that I knew that I should not have done. But that's not who I am. Those are all details. That's not my identity because now I know Jesus and I'm in relationship with him. And the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. I'm a, I'm a new creation. Old things passed away. All things have become new. Second Corinthians 5, 17. A few verses later, verse 21, it says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That, that means my identity. I've got details of mistakes I've made and, and I've done evil, wicked things. Details. My identity is I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, watch, because th this is important. When you forfeit that identity, it's not just a name. You're also forfeiting the things that come along with that identity. The Bible says, for example, in, in Psalm 28, verse 1, that the righteous are as bold as a lion. But if, even though I've, I know Jesus, there's a lot of people who've accepted Jesus and spiritually speaking, they, they've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. But if they don't start thinking in line with that, they'll, they'll forfeit the boldness that also comes along with the identity of being righteous. If I can't think of myself as righteous, it's going to be hard for me to accept one of the characteristics of a righteous man or a righteous woman. I can be made righteous by the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. The blood of Jesus makes me clean. But if I still think of my Myself is, man, I'm just an old sinner just trying to do the best I can. That verse also says the wicked flee when no one's pursuing them. It's talking about cowardice and fear, the opposite of boldness. It doesn't matter how much I want to be bold. I want to be, make impact. I, I want to be confident in my standing with God. If I keep thinking of myself as wicked, as, as sinful, I'm going to have that gyroscope spinning and I, I'm not going to be able to be who I want to be until I start changing the way that I think to line up with God's word. Even though I'm righteous, I can live like a wicked person in cowardice and fear. Because unless I accept the identity of being a righteous person, I'm going to forfeit the boldness that goes along with that identity. Are you with me? Let me read to you from Romans chapter, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. What a costly mistake to allow other things to begin to assign identity to who you are and how you are. Who, who told you you're naked? Who told you that you're not good enough? Who told you that you're less than? Who told you that you're a, a screw up? Who told you that you're, you're not as good as your sibling? Who told you that you're not very smart, that you're not very gifted? Who told you those things? What, what is the source? And even if there's validity to them, just, just a detail, what does God have to say about you? 
What, what is God's description, the identity that he puts on you? What if you began to think about yourself every morning? You woke up in the morning and you started to renew your mind with the word of God, thinking, man, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. In this body, in this flesh, the same spirit that hovered over the waters in Genesis chapter one is living on the inside of me. Greater is he who is in me than he that is in this world. What if you began to think like that? Man, everywhere I go today, the presence of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, man, I'm carrying all of it with me at all times. If you begin to get the, the wheel of your mind spinning that direction, then something happens. It gets hard to get you off that course, but it takes intentionality with the way that you think, not just thinking any old thing, deciding I'm going to renew my mind. That's what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse two. It says, and do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. He's talking about formation. He's talking about development. The end result being that you actually get to prove, you get to live out God's will for you. He has a good, pleasing, a perfect will. The Bible talks about the plans God had for you when he's forming you in your mother's womb. He, he, he knew exactly the giftings and the strengths, the things that he wanted you to accomplish, the fruit he wanted you to bear. But all of that is depending on something. It's depending on the proper formation. It's telling us that the mind has formative powers. How is somebody conformed to the patterns of this world? By well, the way that they think. How is somebody transformed to be made more and more like Christ? Be transformed how? He's talking about our minds and what goes on in our thought life, in our imagination. Your mind has formative power to conform, deform, reform, or to transform. There is a power that your mind has. And if you are ever going to be who God has called you to be, what God was dreaming of when he formed you, it's going to be reliant on what takes place in your thought life. It's not just dependent on the grace of God. It's not just dependent on the mercy of God. It's not dependent on whether you're saved or not. It's it's not dependent on how much you pray. Those are all important things. But this verse is telling us that if you want to prove his will, if you want to live it out, if you want to be transformed, I don't want to be the way that I am anymore. There's growth that has to occur. There's advancement that needs to take place. What does it all come back to? Your mind, your thoughts. Your thoughts are important. The way that you think. You know, people are deceived into thinking that there is a huge gulf between the importance of what they actually do and the importance of what they think. That the two are completely unrelated. That what you do is really, really important, which it is, but then they think that what you think about, your thought life, your imagination, what's going on in your mind, well, that's kind of a murky area. Like it kind of matters, but not really as much as what you actually do. God doesn't see it that way. God sees it very differently than how most of us see it. Let me, let me read you a few examples. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, says, The Lord observed, this is right before he decides to destroy the earth with a flood. It says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. He goes on to deal with Noah about building the ark. 
floods the earth, destroys everyone but Noah and his family. What, what is this based on? What, why is God's heart being broken? Why is he sorry that he ever made people? What is all this based on? Not based on necessarily what they were doing. It says that he saw every thought, everything they thought about, how they were using their thought life, and how they were using their imagination. So if it's going on there, it's the same thing as it actually going on. God, it moves God's heart. It results in people's death. The earth is changed, all coming back to what? The way that people were using this incredible ability that God has put in you and I to think, to have a thought life, to have an imagination. God does not see a huge difference between the things that you think about and the things that you actually do. In his mind, they are very closely linked, if not one and the same. I'll use another example, lust. Lust is another example of this. This maybe applies more to us men than the ladies. But we'll use it as an example anyway. Most people would think that it would be way, way better to just think adulterous thoughts than to actually commit adultery, right? Now, they're both wrong, but if you said, oh, I'm gonna do one or the other, just for a man to think, uh, you know, fornication thoughts, to think sexual interaction with somebody he's, he's not married with, that that's, that's almost acceptable. That's not that big of a deal, but to actually commit adultery, well, that, that, that is a huge deal. Most men in this room, if we took time to go around, would you ever cheat on your wife? Absolutely not. No, I'm so committed. I'd never cheat on my wife. Would you ever think sexually about someone who's not your wife? That eye contact would be lost. And if they're being honest, they say, yeah, I, actually, I sometimes do think se sexual thoughts, right? Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter five, verse 28. Jesus says, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Think about that. God doesn't distinguish between thought and action the way that we do. To him, they're basically one and the same. You're accountable for your thought life, just like you're accountable for what you actually do. Now, I'm using lust as an illustration just to show how powerful your thoughts are and how God, God views our thought life, and you, we're accountable for the things that we think about. What you think about matters way more than we typically think our thoughts matter. I'm using lust as an example, but while we're talking about it, this is an important area for us men. Because a lot of times, even though we know, if you've grown up in church, if you're, you've been around church for any length of time, if you've read the Bible, you know you're not supposed to think lustful thoughts. But a lot of times there's an allowance made for, you know, that thought popped into my head and I only thought it for like 30 seconds. I only thought it for a minute and then I pushed it aside and I went on. And we kind of justify thinking immoral thoughts based on the brevity of the time spent thinking the thought. It's even been taught that way. Hey, you can't help what kind of thoughts you think. You can't, you can't help what kind of pops into your mind. It's just what you do after, after it. You, you think that for a second, you've got to push it aside and, and move on. Maybe you've heard that kind of teaching. That's not what we find Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 5. There's no stopwatch or time that Jesus says, hey, if you only think about it for like 30 seconds, five seconds, then it's not that big of a deal. He says, if you think about it, it's like you've already, already committed adultery in your heart. And then he goes on to say, if your eye causes you to sin in this area, you, you need to gouge it out because it would be better to get to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two eyes. He, he's, he's 
helping us see how important this area of our lives are and how extreme we need to be in guarding our thought life. That even thinking sexual thoughts about someone for, for five seconds, 10 seconds, one minute, whatever length of time you justify, it, it, that, that doesn't fit what Jesus is saying. We're still accountable for those thoughts. So it's a mistake to excuse impure thoughts because of the brevity of the period of time that you thought those thoughts. And if you want to be really real about it, if you're going to excuse things for brevity, the sexual encounter you had in your imagination that you excused because it only lasted a minute, it's probably twice as long as it would have actually taken if you committed it in reality. So if you're going to use that line of logic, then you should have just done it in reality. If, if length of time is all that matters. Pure is pure. Pure is pure. So we've got to guard our hearts, guard our minds. From thinking, even because when you buy into the teaching that, hey, you can't help what you think, you've cracked the door open. You've kind of let yourself off the hook. God has given you a mind with the ability to control it, but you surrender that ability when you just resign yourself to, hey, we just think what we think and we try to manage it the best we can. No, it's your mind that God gave you. And we've got to tr tr be transformed by, by the renewing of our mind. The power that your mind has, the creative force that it has is so strong and so linked to reality that God doesn't really differentiate between thought and practice. Well, God, I, I just thought, uh, it's the same to me. You committed adultery with her in your, in your, in your heart. So you just thought about it, it's the same to me. Now again, I'm just using this to try to drive home how important your thoughts are and the creative force that your thoughts have. Your thoughts have creative, creative power. Let me read to you from Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, starting in verse five. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. There's creative power in your thought life. That the difference between death, what, what's creating death? And it's not just death in a, in a heart stopping. It's death in a a marriage, death in someone's potential, death to someone's joy, death to, to a dream, death to the anointing on your life, death to a ministry. How does that come about? How does all that death, what is spawning it? What is creating it? What is it causing it? It's what's going on in a person's mind. And then on the other side, the mindset on the things of the spirit determined by the mindset is life and it's peace. Your mind has incredible creative power. Where we started off, as a man thinks, what happens? He's creating his reality. He's determining the kind of man, the kind of woman that they're going to be, how, all based on what they are thinking about, how they see themselves, whether it's in line with what God says or not. You know, the, the devil didn't force Eve to disobey. He didn't force her to do it. He just started putting thoughts in her mind. And if you could get her thinking a certain way, it's a creative force. It's a creative force that he just, he started nudging her towards thinking. And if you could get her thinking that way, the, the wheel's in motion because your thoughts are creative. In verse six of Genesis chapter three, it says that Eve started to see that that, that fruit looked good. It was desirable. The fruit looks, that fruit on that tree, we're not supposed to eat. You have, 
Look how desirable it is. Look how pleasant it is. Those are the words she uses to describe it. It's good, it's pleasant, it's desirable. Man, that's some good looking fruit. That fruit looked the same way the day before, the, the week before, a month before. That, the look of the fruit didn't change. What did change? Her thoughts. Her thoughts changed. And that's what ended up derailing her and her husband. Your thoughts have creative, creative power. Let, let me read one more verse, one more passage, and then we'll pray. First Peter, first Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one, starting in verse 13, it says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it's written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, but let me just try to draw one thing out. It says in verse 13, to gird up, to gird up the loins of your mind. To gird up the loins of your mind. Now, he's drawing an analogy from the way that they would dress and what they would have to do in order to run or be active or work or participate in any kind of sporting athletic behavior because they wore long robes they'd have to gird it up they'd have to gather it up twist it around and tuck it into their girdle they, they would they would gird up it was the way that they prepared themselves got themselves ready to be able to run again any kind of uh, active active behavior now you could be you could be very athletic you could be very fast you could be very agile but if you didn't prepare properly, if you didn't gird up, then you could actually behave and look as if you're slow, as if you're cumbersome, as if you're clumsy, you're not agile at all. You are, why, why, do, why aren't you actually performing the way that you really are because of your failure to prepare and gird up, gird up your rope. It's the same way in our minds, that you might be a number of things, righteous, holy, pure, one with Jesus Christ, united with him in spirit, but if you don't, prepare your mind right, gird up your mind, then you're, you're not going to behave the way that you truly are based on a failure to prepare. He tells us to gird up, to get ready, prepare our minds. Therefore, gird up. He could have just said, gird up your minds, prepare your minds. That would have been good, right? Gird up, prepare, get yourself right in the way that you think, get your minds ready. But he doesn't say that. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. So Peter, why did you have to bring loins into it? Why did you have to make it weird and start talking about loins? Well, he did. So let's talk about loins. If you look up this word from this verse in Strong's Greek lexicon, one of the definitions for loin, this is what they thought when they used the word loin, is this. I wrote it down word for word. The place where the Hebrews thought the generative power, in parentheses, semen, resided. So he's talking about reproductive, right? When he says gird up, again, he could have just said, it would have been meaningful. We could still be talking about it, drawing truths out of it. He said, you need to gird up your minds. And that's usually where we, we, we leave things. 
gather up, prepare your minds. He didn't just say that. He said, the loins of your mind. So he brought in this reproductive aspect. Now, when we talk about loins, if I said, if I talked about the fruit of my loins, what would I be talking about? My children, right? I would be talking about my kids. They are the fruit of my loins, my, my offspring. In fact, can I have one of my kids? Autumn, come here for a second. Let me show you the fruit of my loins. Sorry, Daddy brought you up here while I'm talking about my loins. <laughs> she said she's used to it. <laughs> so I, I could say, let me show you the fruit of my loins. Some of you clapped. And she came up, I, I can show you the fruit of my loins, right? I can't show you my loins. In fact, if I said, let me show you my loins, people would be like leaving fast, right? Diving for cover, screaming, oh no, right? Because when you talk about loins, that, that's, that's hidden. That's private parts, right? That's what we're talking about with, with loins. You can't see those. You can't see someone's loins. But what you can see you can see the fruit of their, of their loins. So he's, he's cho choosing this word when he's talking about our minds. Gird up, what, the loins of your mind. I can't see what you're thinking. You can't see what, what I'm thinking. That's a private part. That, that's a hidden area that no one's able to get a, a peek into other than God. But you know what you can see? You can look at someone's life and you can see the fruit of their loins. You can see what's going on in their life and trace that back. I know what's been going on in the loins of your mind based on what your life is producing. And you You've got to know that your thoughts are not just thoughts. It's the, the loins of your mind. It's hidden. Nobody else knows, but it's producing a fruit. Look at your life and say, I've been thinking about myself a certain way. I've been thinking about my life. I've been thinking about my ability at this level. And that's probably what you're going to see when you examine your life. But where is that coming from? Where is that coming from? Thank you. Where is what, how you are thinking your thoughts? Well, who told you that you're naked? Who told you that you're not good enough? Who told you that you're not strong enough? Who told you that you need to hide? Who told you that you need to be shameful? What, what is the source of that? Who told you that you're too young, too old? It, it's too soon, it's too late. What, what is the source of that? And if it's you, if it's someone, if it's a situation, you've gotta push those things aside. Do, how would you describe yourself? And then give me chapter and verse. Ch chapter and verse, please. But what based on God's word, not, not just a detail. It, People identify as just the details of their life. Push that aside. If it's a detail, that's not you. What does God have to say about you? That's how you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. J just like that wheel in that circle or like a merry-go-round. You've got to keep on pushing and keep on pushing and keep on pushing to keep that momentum up. You've got to keep on spinning. Every day, I'm, I'm just renewing my mind with the word of God. I'm identifying not with what happened yesterday, not with how I performed at work, not on how the sales went. I'm, I'm living in line with what what God's word has to say about me and everything else is just details. But you've got to know there's an enemy that's aggressively seeking to slide one of those details onto your name tag and say that that's who you are. Because if he can do that, you've just forfeited all of the things that come along with what God says that you are. Who told you you're naked? Was it God? It doesn't matter. 
The way that you think about yourself is going to determine the course of your life. And God has great things for you. He says great things about you. Here's what I want to do. Let's go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 says, The Lord has given me a strong warning. The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. Got to warn people. This is a warning for you. You can't, you can't think like everyone else does. The Bible says, Proverbs chapter 14, that there's a way that seems right to a man. It's a pattern in this world. What seems appropriate? I can justify this. This seems valid. This is a pretty good description of who I am, how I am, how I've performed. This seems like a pretty valid identity. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. God give us a strong warning not to think like other people do, not to just go along with the patterns of behavior, the patterns of, of thinking. So with your eyes closed for just a moment, just let the Holy Spirit deal with your heart. How would you describe yourself? If you had to pick three words, five words to describe yourself, what would they be? And I don't mean what you would write on a resume. I mean, if you're being bare honest, how do you think of yourself? I'm a lousy mom. I'm not that great of a husband. I'll never be as good as what are, the, what are the patterns in your mind? Just take a moment to think. Actually think, if you had to write down three words, how you primarily identify yourself. Disappointment, okay, average. Whatever those words are, you don't have a chapter and verse, just allow the Lord to wipe that identity, that description of who you are away. I want to make a commitment as we start this series, we're going to start thinking of ourselves consistent with the Word of God. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.